You are listening to First in Human, where we interview industry leaders and investors to learn about their journey to inhuman clinical trials. Presented by Vile, a tech-enabled CRO. Hosted by co-founder and CEO Simon Burns. With episodes launching weekly on Tuesdays and Thursdays. For episode 18, we sit down with David Berry, CEO and board director at Valo Health. Having founded over 25 companies, find out what crucial piece of advice he received early on in his career, as well as what led to the success of Valo's first inhuman for retina trial last year. David, thank you for joining us on First Inhuman. Thank you. It's great to be here. You have an incredibly impressive background, GP at Flagship, CEO of Velo. You're doing fantastic work. You've been recognized in a whole bunch of different ways. Tell us a bit more about your background and what led you to studying Velo. Sure. Happy to. I had the pleasure of doing my undergraduate at MIT, did an MD at Harvard Med and a PhD at MIT in biological engineering, working with Bob Langer and Ram Sassasekaran. What was great about the educational background is those are just areas where the sky is the limit, the opportunity is what you seek. Bob Langer gave me a piece of advice early on in my career, which is that all problems are equally hard to solve. So why not go after big ones? And it's been something that's really stuck with me. So after school, I ended up joining Flagship Pioneering, spent a decade and a half with the firm. And it's been fascinating because the mission and vision behind Flagship is to do unprecedented things, to imagine the future that we want and build it. And so I had the privilege of working with a number of great people over the years and taking what were big ideas at the time felt completely foreign and trying to figure out how we can build them into a reality where some of them, when we talk about them today, almost feel like they were obvious to a point that people have actually said that idea was obvious when you created it. Well, if you actually had the conversations at the time, it wasn't, but it's fine. But that's been something that's been really exciting to me. What ended up taking me to Vala was in 2018, 2019, it occurred to me that there was a transitional opportunity that was emerging at a scale, frankly, I haven't seen before. And that was really exciting. What that is, is when you think about how the tech world has disrupted a range of industries, there's a very similar pattern in these cases, which is you often take an industry that has siloed data and a siloed operational structure and when you can get the right scale and quality of data with an ability to build an integrated architecture and an ability to use that data across the architecture, you can effectively build a new model, one that is, instead of locally optimized, systems optimized. And we've seen this over and over in the tech world because when you take that systems optimization, you can then effectively use it and become a new standard. Pharma has been historically recalcitrant to this kind of approach. But what we saw was that the data framework for that was starting to change around 2018, 2019. That led me to say, wait a second, there's an opportunity to build a big and different company here. If we have that opportunity to build an integrated end-to-end -end drug discovery and development capability that's anchored around human data, we could reduce the cost of developing drugs, reduce the time, increase the probability of success. And if we could do it at scale, it could transform the way we think about drug discovery and development. And that opportunity where you can see something that could benefit patients and moss, where you could think about the positive benefits across an industry, it was tremendous from my perspective. So it got me incredibly excited to focus on it. Do you have a count of how many companies you've started at this point? It must be over 25. Would love to hear your insights, having seen that many biotech companies that you've been a part of the founding story of. What are the key lessons? What are the key insights that you give to early stage biotech companies who are seeking your advice? Every company that gets created is its own being. 
has its own way of success and its own way of failure. And learning about those processes is incredibly important for the company. And I would say that generally. One of the things that we did at Flagship was we built effectively a stage gate model for a company creation. This is a four-step model that basically works through an exploration, a proto-company, a new co, and a growth co. And the intent on this is to really take out a number of those, I would call generalizable fail modes of companies. So the way we think about it, the exploration is you start with a big question. You do a couple of things. One is you separate truth from belief. That is, every field is filled with dogma. Dogma is there because it's the language you need to succeed in those fields, but it's not necessarily right. And I can give you great examples. We get taught all the time that we use three to 10% of our brains. That comes from science that was done in Germany in the 1800s, where literally blunt instruments were put into the skulls of rats to see when they could see changes in the way they functioned. And it worked in about three to 10% of the volume. But we've all heard those numbers. And it's interesting because it's been passed down. Reality is you go into a PET scanner, you go into an fMRI machine. We know humans are using all of the brains, but yet that number continues to exist. And at the same time, it's not things that seem that esoteric. Kindergartners get taught that cancer is caused by genetic mutation. Now, this goes back to 1973, plus or minus, when trans genes were inserted into cells and were shown to be sufficient to create cancer. You need necessary and sufficient and the necessary wasn't demonstrated. No disrespect to the science. It just took off. And of course, we all know that genetic mutation is found quite often with cancer. But there's cancers today that have only had epigenetic changes and not genetic changes. It's not to say we should upend the whole field, but you need the right facts to start. We then start asking a bunch of what-if questions, which is, allows us to imagine the future. But we need to create something tangible. And then we use basically a methodology where we could engage the community and start figuring out where our hypotheses are right and wrong. And the great thing is the second most renewable resource in the world is people's willingness to tell you how bad your idea is. And it's great feedback because you can then start iterating your ideas really quickly. We hone it down to one and then prototype it. It's a proto company. That allows us to test the company very directly and very quickly. It's almost like prototyping a car or anything else that you would machine. And in that case, you ask the question, What's the key fail mode? Entrepreneurs don't like asking this question because if you get the negative answer, you have to shut down the company. But for us, it's an experiment before it's a company. And that allows us to go after these key fail modes. Then we go and start building the company as a new co. But during that phase, it's important for us to have it under our own supervision. Something fascinating happens always within the first 18 months of a company. You get the unexpected bit of data. Never know when it's going to be, never know what it's going to be. But data is data, and you got to follow the data. And so when something new and unexpected comes up, you have to embrace that moment and figure out what it's telling you around what the platform might actually have. After that, you start realizing where the sea legs actually are, and that's when we can convert it into a growth co, which is what you would think of as a standard company that's growing. Now, the methodology builds off of a lot of experience of starting companies and recognizing where traditional issues are. So what we've tried to do is to schematize as much of what we can to take out that generalizable risk. The real lesson that I've taken over and over is you really have to follow the data. We all have best intents. We all have the desire to make things successful. But the probability that we predicted the exact perfect path to develop something on day one with a very limited amount of information is close to zero. And once you recognize that and you embrace the fact that there's learning opportunities all over the place, you make yourself into a learning person 
and the organization into a learning organization. And I think it just grows that much faster. 2023 has been an exciting year for all things AI. We're all talking about Chad GPT. We're talking about Ed GPT 3 and 4, the rumors of, of all kinds of incredible capabilities coming around. But biology and chemistry is very different. You guys are focused on mapping a lot of human biology and chemistry to power AI. Maybe give us a sense of some of the key challenges in building AI in your space. And what, if anything, do you think is changing because of some of the advances we're seeing coming out of OpenAI and other companies? ChatGPT is a great example. I love what it's doing. And I love where we can all see some of the transformations that are going to come out of this. And I think it's a really powerful tool. But as we know, it's imperfect. Right. I mean, if we go in and we ask something like write a 750 word essay on something, 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 the sentences are great English, but the content sometimes is off. And that's okay because we have the ability as people who review that to then fix it up. And it's a huge time saver. So I love it. And it's great because it's showing off the power of AI. Now, drug discovery and development is similar and different in that we can use the same types of data. Obviously, it's different in structure. We have to integrate it across a different set of frameworks. And we can start understanding, hey, how do we design molecules? How do we design drugs and use AI to give us a learning capability that just exceeds the scale of what humans can traditionally learn because of the massive scale of data that goes into chemicals, right? There's 10 to the 63rd possible chemical structures. You get to these numbers, there's no way chemists can imagine all those structures and put them all in their head. No disrespect to them. It's just, that's not how the human brain is designed. And with that, what we can start doing is experimenting on much, much larger domains of chemistry, exploring much larger numbers of variants, and that's great and incredibly powerful. Where there's a huge difference, and this is where it's important, is that if your chemical structure is a little off, you can cause massive toxicity in a patient. What we're seeing right now is we don't have that ability to put it out there and see what happens. We have to put it out there and put all the rigorous testing around it. Now that gives us our own feedback cycle, which is really important, gives us a different architecture of data. And that's why we've seen the evolution in this field seemingly a little slower than what we've seen in the world of something like ChatGPT or Dolly or any of these other types of approaches, which are great and I'm really excited by. But it's that rigor that we need to make sure we have on the first time that it comes out to make sure we're treating patients well, we're treating them safely, and we're ultimately making effective drugs. Now I expect ChatGPT to get there over time where we're getting pros that looks better than anyone living can make, just like what we've seen with Go, what I fully expect that we're going to see with drug discovery and development. We just have to make sure we put the right boundary conditions because, as we all know, first, do no harm. Of course, last year was very exciting for Valo. You guys had your first achievement for a retina trial, a lot of progress in the clinic on heart failure. Maybe give us a sense of what's going on in the clinic for you and what are you excited about? Sure. So we have two phase two molecules. We're very excited about them. One of them is a ROC1-2 inhibitor that we're developing for non-proliferative diabetic retinopathy. We're very excited about this for a couple of reasons. One is because patients who have diabetic retinopathy, and this is about a third of patients who have type 2 diabetes, really don't have great treatment options today. They can go through surgery or they can get the delivery of drugs and better to have drugs than not that are administered through a direct injection into the eye. And so part of what we're excited about is this drug is orally bioavailable. That is, it gets into the eye after being administered orally. That's exciting because we think it can offer the patients for potential for a better route of administration, lead to potentially higher compliance, and maybe that leads to a better benefit for them. But the other thing that we did is we were able to use our computational tools to try to predict which patients are most likely to progress from one stage to the next stage of diabetic retinopathy. And what that helps us to do is to identify the patients that we think are most likely to benefit from the drug. And this allows us to start matching up drug to patient benefit 
in ways that we think are better for the patient, that are better for the health system. And we're very excited about that. So we're actively enrolling a phase two study right now. Very excited to see how that's going to go. But obviously, we're very hopeful about that. The other one that we're going after is a unique drug that is a functional S1P1 biased agonist. There's S1P1 drugs that are out there, but they functionally antagonize the underlying biology. And what that does is it leads to a very powerful anti-inflammatory benefit that's been used for multiple sclerosis, ulcerative colitis. There's approved drugs, they're great. What this drug does by being selective is it actually benefits cardiovascular specific biology. And we're very excited about that. We're developing it along what I like to call the heart failure axis. That is, we can go after indications from acute kidney injury to heart attacks to heart failure with preserved ejection fractions, HFPEF, and that's very exciting to us. And here, what we've been really trying to do is understand who are the patients who are most likely to benefit and how can we administer the drug to those patients. So that's been very exciting to us because each of these is allowing us to explore and develop and validate, hopefully, our Opal computational platform in their own way. We saw you present at JPM a couple of weeks ago now, or maybe a year into the XBI bear market, m and still not coming back. What's your sense of all things, the current state of biotech? The fundamentals of biotech as a technology remain incredibly strong. As I look out at some of the drugs that are being developed, I don't think I've seen more exciting time than the present. Whether you look at anything from KRAS inhibitors to even some of what's being developed in the CV world, it's an exciting time for new drugs that are being developed. And we don't have to look too much further than the COVID vaccines to say, this industry is doing unprecedented things at an unprecedented rate. And that's so exciting. Now, obviously, the financial markets turned. They didn't just turn in biotech, but they turned pretty bad in biotech. And last year was a rough year if you were a public company. Anytime people put out news, they were more likely to be met with a decrease in their stock price, regardless of what the news was. But that's what you get in bear markets. What was really encouraging to me around JP Morgan was people were really starting to focus in on what are the companies, what are the drugs, what are the technologies that are going to lead to that near, mid, and long-term transformation? And people really grafting that kind of future opportunity. And that's really what biotech has been about, is what that opportunity to deliver transformations for patients ultimately can be. And watching the field come back to that is tremendously exciting. And I'd say, yes, in any bear market, there's always doom and gloom conversations. But I also heard a lot of hope and optimism. And that was incredibly exciting from my perspective, because I'm hoping that 2023 becomes another one of those years that we talk about where we're seeing a science first year, we're seeing a patient's first year, and that opportunity for the industry to deliver and deliver unprecedented benefits is something that I think we're going to get the opportunity to see a lot more of. Lastly, clinical trials, you're building for scale and thinking a lot about how to scale the discovery phases. Obviously, we think a lot about scale and applications of technology in the clinical phases. Where, if, if anywhere, do you find that there's exciting room for technologies, room to drive efficiencies in clinical trials? I think there's a tremendous opportunity to drive efficiency in clinical trials. I tend to break down clinical trials into two or three components, but I'll focus on two. One is how you design your study. The other is how you execute your study. I think the design, there's a tremendous opportunity to think about how we can match drugs to patients at the right time. And that's a big part of what we've been focusing on at Valo, because if you can get the right intent to treat population, I think you can make better trials but you can also get drugs that are designed to do better for patients. And that's really exciting. But of course, we've also seen some improvements on the operational side. It's not what we're focused on, but it's something that I'm very excited about because 
it's not just about matching the drug to the patient, but you got to find that patient. And the more that you can streamline the ability to identify that patient and enroll them in a study, of course, the faster the study goes, but it's also beneficial for that patient because they're looking for that treatment. And so the more that the ecosystem, if I can be passive about it, is helping to match those drugs to patients and do it faster, do it in a more seamless way, I think it's better for everyone. And so I'm very excited about many of the companies and technologies that have been emerging to help make that from an idea into a reality. That's great. With that, David, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate the time. Well, thank you. It's been great to join. Thanks for listening. Be sure to follow us on Apple, Spotify, and Google. 